Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Tories are at war again over taxes and whether they will have to be raised this autumn to pay for the economic damage caused by coronavirus. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times with me, Sebastian Payne. In this episode, I'll be discussing why Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson tried to calm conservative fears over the economic turbulence ahead with political editor George Parker and economics editor Chris Giles. And later, I'll be discussing how aid, trade and diplomacy can work together in the new Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Department with political columnist Robert Shrimsley and special guest Bronwyn Maddox, who's director of the Institute for Government Think Tank. George and Chris, welcome back. Hi there, Seb. Hi, Seb. So before we talk about the economy, we've had some intriguing Whitehorn news this week. First of all, Simon Case was appointed out of nowhere to be the new cabinet secretary, an excellent exclusive by George. But whereas he's going to be staying in 10 Downing Street, lots of other people are moving out. We've discovered that Dominic Cummings, who's the Prime Minister's chief advisor, is setting up a new NASA-style control room in 70 Whitehall. There's been some excellent illustrations of this, George, giving you the idea of Bond-style bunkers with screens, round desks and all the rest of it. And I was wondering what you make of this and most importantly, how it compares to your NASA-style control centre at home. <laughs> well, I, I say the illustrations have made it look sort of quite space age, but in the end, I think most companies would recognise Dom's command centre as just some, something where you organise people according to their speciality in little sections. It's not exactly rocket science. But as to my own uh, command centre, Seb, um, well, I'm sitting in my front room at the moment. I'm surrounded by screens which give me real-time information about where all my kids are. The one other thing that we've learned, Seb, about the uh, command centre is that all the computers aren't actually installed yet. So maybe Dom needs another command centre to monitor progress on delivering his command centre. It feels like your command centre, George, is more advanced than the one in 70 Whitehall, but I imagine Chris Giles is surrounded by real-time Bloomberg terminals, treasury data, and all that's going on in the economy. You might think that, Seb, but actually I'm sitting in front of a laptop. I do have about 25 tabs open on Google Chrome, which my kids say is absurd. But no, sadly, I've just got one rather old laptop. And it's actually one of the reasons they're doing this, Chris, because the Treasury does have access to a lot of real-time data about how much money's coming in and out of the economy every day. So when Rishi Sunak rocks up for work, he can get a very quick overview of what's happening in the economy. But the Prime Minister doesn't quite have that. Yeah, so I mean, they, they're particularly keen on the real-time data, and some of it is really rather good. So you see now we're getting a press release every week from the Treasury highlighting the number of restaurant bookings from Eat Out to Help Out. And that comes from places like Open Table who monitor this. But let's face it, you don't need to have this in absolute real time because these things tend to come out once a day or even once a week. So you can't sit there, you know, with a countdown 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, lift off and just get a new piece of data up there because it's not quite like the markets, even though we are getting much more information in real time than we used to be. 
So let's move from one Whitehawk control centre to another and look at the government's plans to fix the UK economy after COVID-19. This week in Westminster has been dominated by chat of how to pay for coronavirus, with Rishi Sunak's Eat Out to Help Out scheme finishing and the furlough scheme supporting millions of jobs coming to an end, the hard choices about paying for all that extra public spending are coming to the fore, especially with a budget due later this year. Mr Sunak has warned both the public and restive Conservatives that difficult decisions will have to be taken. That probably means tax rises of some sort, which has typically worried many Tories, even those who are concerned about the state of the public finances. This is what the Chancellor told ITV News. I'll always be honest with the British people, and what I'd say is our economy has taken a significant hit as a result of the coronavirus. But of course it's right that over time we have sustainable public finances. I think everyone understands we can't carry on doing exactly what we did this year forever. Chris Giles, can you begin by giving us an overview of what the economic damage from coronavirus might possibly be? The Office for Budget Responsibility have three separate forecasts of what the long-term scarring might be. And we just have no idea yet. What we know is that the economy dived in the first and second quarters, lost about 25% of output, and is really going gangbusters, likely to rise about 14 or so percent in the third quarter, having recovered about half of its losses of the first half of the year. Now, we'd expect that rapid recovery to continue, but then to start to peter out. And that's what we've seen in other countries who are a bit further advanced than we are. When it peters out, the damage you get left with ultimately will determine the public finance sustainability question. Well, George Parker, regardless of when that growth does peter out, there is one very clear thing, which is the fact that debt has increased massively and the deficit has risen above 100% of GDP. And that's obviously going to have to be paid for. There's a feeling among Tories they recognise that public finances are going to have to be tackled in the same way they were after the financial crisis in 2010. But there's just no real appetite for more cuts and austerity in the party. Well, no, Boris Johnson doesn't like to use the word austerity, but he's made it clear there won't be any more of that word he won't mention that George Osborne introduced. So therefore, you start to look at the possibility of tax rises and then you're into the traditional two Tory impulses conflicting with each other. On the one hand, they want to be the party of low taxation, of course. On the other hand, they're the party of sound public finances, or at least they say they are. So those are in conflict. And you heard that playing out this week in the way people have responded to the possibility of this tax bombshell. The interesting thing really is not so much the high level of debt that Chris was just referring to, which you know is sustainable as long as interest rates are low. It's more the danger that the economy is permanently smaller. Plus, there are bigger demands on the state to be more resilient after the coronavirus crisis. So therefore, Rishi Sunak is looking to fill that tax hole. And if you look at the politics of it, of course, the impulse for the Chancellor will be to put up taxes early in the Parliament with the prospect of cutting them later in the Parliament as the election approaches, which is the traditional thing you do. And there was a hint of that from what Rishi Sunak said this week to new MPs in a meeting at Westminster when he said, this won't be a horror show with no end in sight. So sort of a light at the end of the tunnel there. 
Well, it depends, of course, how you define horror show and how you define end in sight. And the MPs from the 2019 intake that you and I spoke to, George, all kind of said, look, we don't like tax rises. We know our voters in the Red Wall. That's the places in England that never voted Tory before. They're not going to like tax rises, but we're accepted they're going to have to happen in some form. Yeah, that's right. And again, there are two wings of the Tory party worried about different kinds of tax rises. So those MPs that were elected at the last election representing the Red Wall seats in the North Midlands, places like that, they're concerned about taxes which hit working people. So, for example, income tax most obviously, but also moves to equalise the rate of national insurance with income tax that would hit white van man. And in particular, that totemic thing of raising fuel duty. On the other hand, you've got more traditional Tories representing wealthier parts of the country who are very worried about the chance of putting up taxes on business or hitting people's pensions or hitting people's second homes as well. So whichever way the Chancellor turns, he's going to be in trouble. And there's another strand of Tory thinking, of course, which the Treasury roll their eyes out a bit. And it's the idea advanced by Therese Coffey, the Work and Pension Secretary this week, also Graham Brady, the influential chairman of the 22 Committee, which is the best way to sort out the fiscal mess is to get the economy growing faster And you do that by cutting taxes, not by increasing them. And what do you make of that prospect, Chris? Well, I think the economics of this is quite simple. Ultimately, when we know what the damage is, then we will have a smaller economy than we previously thought. That economy will generate less tax revenues. And we're likely, as George says, to want a more resilient state. And so public spending is probably going to have to be a bit higher than we were expecting. So you are going to be running a larger deficit and therefore having rising debt burden into the future. That's what the forecasts will show when everything is settled down, almost certainly. Then you do need to stabilise the public finances. But the big question is, at what point? And everyone knows that when you raise taxes, that does have at least a short-term impact on the economy. It depresses growth for a period, and that's where Theresa Coffey is coming from. The Treasury, I think, is entirely right to roll their eyes at the suggestion that if you keep cutting taxes, you just get faster and faster growth forever. There's very little evidence for that. But there is a short-term impact of raising tax. So the moment at which you do it is really important. And I can't find pretty much any economist who thinks you should do it soon. So this creates then the political problem. If everyone says you should wait, it just let debt grow for a bit until we, A, know more about it, and B, have a more stable economy. So I think it just is a very difficult trade-off for the Chancellor. And at the moment, it seems like he's hell-bent on announcing tax increases in the budget, not necessarily implementing them straight away, but announcing them so that the public finances look okay in the forecasts. But every economist I've spoken to thinks it's better to wait. The spectre of mass unemployment is certainly hanging over the government, and that's something the Labour Party is keenly aware of. Annalise Dodds, who's the shadow chancellor, has been hammering home that point as she told the Labour List website. Right now, as I said, government's focus should be on preventing additional unemployment. You know, we're already in a worse situation than many other countries. And ultimately, if we see more people becoming unemployed, then that base for taxation is going to be reduced and it's going to take it longer for us to return to economic capacity, whatever kind of a tax system we have. Well, George, the Tories are obviously concerned about this with the furlough scheme coming to an end in the next couple of weeks here. And I think that the expectation management Boris Johnson was trying to set with MPs when he said it's been a tough time and it's going to get worse. 
And I think the fact he said that in such stark terms to Conservative MPs to let them know there's going to be a political battle on their hands and it's probably going to give the Labour Party something of an opening, as Miss Dodds kind of hinted at there. There's no doubt that the headlines around a tax bombshell and Boris Johnson warning that things are going to get worse before they get better are all part of trying to change the political debate and to warn people that the good times and Treasury handouts are probably going to be coming to an end. There's a feeling in the Treasury that the public have got the idea that you can't keep spending forever more quickly than the politicians. Do you make things less tough by spending more money and keeping the furlough scheme running for a bit longer, which is what the Labour Party wants to do, at least for sectors of the economy? Well, it was very striking, I thought, this week that Boris Johnson used really strong language to say that wasn't going to happen. He talks about people being held in suspended animation in jobs that no longer exist. So I think the furlough scheme will be wound up as planned at the end of October. There's a question then about whether the Treasury finds ways of helping subsidise new jobs through the tax system potentially. But I think in terms of extending the furlough scheme, they don't want to do that. And actually, funnily enough, in spite of the fact Boris Johnson said things were going to get worse, the Treasury also think that actually some of the worst forecasts about the economy this autumn aren't looking like they're going to be borne out. And in fact, we're looking like the economy might be slightly stronger than people predicted. Yes, I think that's true. There is evidence that certainly in the third quarter has been stronger than people thought and people have been spending more than expected. So the bounce back has been rather stronger. That doesn't mean the long term is necessarily any better, but it's been a faster recovery. One of the things that is inevitably happening, we're talking about tax rises as in changing the tax system, but we're going to be having effectively fiscal tightening. We're already having it because we've already stopped things like eat out to help out. So that was a tax subsidy for August. And as the furlough scheme winds up and VAT deferrals stop and the rent and rates holidays stop, we're going to have quite big effective tax rises happening over the next six months anyway. And that is going to have some form of dampening effect on the speed of the recovery. But it's incredibly strong at the moment. And finally, for you, Chris, if you were to look at which things might get tinkered and raised with come a budget, if it happens later in the year, what areas do you think they're going to look at raising taxes? The really difficult thing is that everyone thinks the best way to raise quite a lot of money is big, broad taxes and increasing the rate a little bit. Trouble is, that's directly and specifically contrary to the Conservative manifesto, because the big, broad taxes are income tax, national insurance and VAT, and they have a specific statement that they won't raise those three taxes. So then you start getting into smaller taxes or taxes on smaller groups of people, which is much harder to raise big money and much more likely to have big distortionary effects. So I think we probably would see a bit of salami slicing across the board. So maybe a small increase in fuel duty. Fuel duty does raise quite a bit of money, nearly 30 billion quid or so. I think a small increase in corporation tax and then some form of equalisation of tax that self-employed and owner-directors of companies pay compared with employees, because at the moment they pay significantly less on effectively income than employees do. And that is certainly something that the Treasury sees as quite a distortion. The Institute for Fiscal Studies said there's about 15 billion quid if you completely equalised it. I'm sure they wouldn't go that far, but there is some potentially quite large money there. But some people would have very, very large increases in their taxes. And briefly, finally, George, just a bit on the politics between number 10 and number 11 here, that obviously Rishi Sunak's primary thing is to make sure the public finances are on a sound footing while trying to keep some of that sheen and public profile he garnered during the coronavirus crisis. 
Whereas you said Boris Johnson doesn't want to be seen as Mr. Austerity. Is there any sense yet of any difference of opinion? And do you think Mr. Sunak can come through this with his reputation still enhanced? <laughs> well, I don't think his popularity will ever hit the heights it hit during the pandemic when he was handing the money out and his approval ratings soared. He was even popular in Scotland, for heaven's sake. But no, there are people in the Treasury who acknowledge that the tensions are going to rise between number 10 and number 11 in the run-up to this budget. I think it's inevitable. The Treasury has a different set of priorities to Boris Johnson. OK, austerity may not be coming back, but every single tax rise that Rishi Sunak contemplates will have a queue of people lining up at Boris Johnson's door saying, we can't do this, we're Conservatives, we've made a manifesto promise, whatever it is. And Boris Johnson, we know, doesn't like doing that sort of stuff. So I think things are going to get difficult over the autumn and we're just seeing the start of that now. Chris and George, thank you. The brass plaque polish came out in Whitehall this week as the Department for International Development shut down and was rolled into the all-new Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office, or FICARDO, as it's rapidly become known among officials. But despite the insistence of Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab that this new enlarged department would not diminish Britain's standing, there is much speculation in Westminster that the spending target of 0.7% of GDP on international aid would be cut. The merging of these two key Foreign Office departments is central to the Johnson government's agenda for trying to strengthen the UK's place in the world after Brexit. The new Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office will deliver on this government's mission to forge a truly global Britain, to defend all aspects of the British national interest and to project this country as an even stronger force for good in the world. Robert Shrimsley, as we heard from the Foreign Secretary there, the government is trying to say that this shutting down of DFID uh, was all part of strengthening the UK's foreign policy. But is it just actually about trying to save money in Whitehall? It's about a couple of things, and I'm sure that is one of them. If you look at the budgets of the Foreign Office and what was DFID, the Foreign Office had about a 2.5 billion budget. DFID had four times that, it's over 10 billion. And so it's got a lot more money to spend. And whatever talk Boris Johnson has made about not returning to austerity, they are going to have to find spending cuts. And if you can eat into that budget, that's a very useful thing. And, you know, it's worth saying, by the way, that, you know, this, this department has been abolished now three times. It's been created by the Labour Party three times and abolished by the Conservatives three times. But there is also the ideological point about wanting to shift the way that the UK directs its foreign aid in a way that helps its broader strategic goals. But I think there's a fundamental misconception, this, which is that the issue is not how much you choose to spend on overseas aid. Nothing's stopping the UK spending money to pursue its strategic goals. The issue is that there is actually a very tight definition about what classifies as overseas aid under the OECD definitions. So if you want to keep to the 0.7% of GDP commitment that this government says it's going to keep to, that becomes a lot trickier. And so what you get into the business of seeing if you can find ways of reclassifying your spending in ways that allow you to claim it's overseas aid. So I think there is a reasonable concern among a lot of people that it will lead to a reduction of the kind of aid spending that previous governments have been committed to. And of course, there are sections of the Conservative Party that want that. There is a very strong strain within the Conservative Party that argues, look, we're in real financial difficulties of our own here. We haven't got £10 billion to spend and we need to be redirecting some of that money back towards Britain. And then you also have people who say, Boris Johnson even, why are we giving more money to Zambia than we are to the Ukraine, which fulfills our strategic goals? 
Now, not everybody's a fan of this merger. One person who's been pretty critical is Hillary Benn, who used to be the International Development Secretary under Tony Blair's government, and he's been scathing about the decision to roll it into the Foreign Office. I think it's a mistake. Um, and David Cameron thinks it's a mistake. Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Andrew Mitchell, highly respected former Conservative Development Secretary. The proof will be in how this new uh, department uh, develops and unfolds. But I think it will um, lead to less respect for the work that we're doing. Well, Bonwin Maddox, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. What's the view inside the civil service about the merger? Because as Robert said, this has been a bit of a to and fro. It's gone from inside the FCO to outside and back in again. And it's been a long-term aim of Boris Johnson to bring these two things closer together. There are really the two sides to this. There's the purely administrative business of putting together two departments, which always takes a great deal of time, much more time than people think it's going to. And you've got, in this case, the peculiarity that the one with the bigger budget is not really emerging on top. It's very much the Foreign Office leading whatever the merged programme is going to be. But the work on that has been going on for a long time. has been going on way before the announcement. I think the bigger question, though, is what is the point of this? And I think it's absolutely right to say that there are two points. One is to try to reappropriate some of this money towards more strategic goals. But then there is the question of what those goals actually are. And I would certainly take it at face value part of what the government says about wanting a unified voice as Britain comes out of the European Union and out of the transition period and wants to project itself on the world stage. You want all these bits of how it expresses itself internationally, which is through foreign policy, through aid, through trade, through defence, all these perhaps to be more united than they have been in the past. So I don't think that's just rhetoric by the government, but it's clear that there may be quite a squeeze on the budget itself. And the cultures of the Foreign Office and DFID were very, very different. DFID attracted uh, quite idealistic people who very possibly would spend their whole career in aid and development, not in the rest of Whitehall, and very much identified with those values and that life. And that's different from the strategic, diplomatic, analytical Foreign Office skills where those people absolutely get to know a country well, but saw themselves much more as part of the government and Whitehall machine, if you like. This brings us on to the next key point, which is about the 0.7% target. This is written into law and says that Britain has to spend 0.7% of its GDP on overseas aid. And Boris Johnson, way before he became Foreign Secretary, as a newspaper columnist, has been a long-term critic of that target, saying that it's wasteful and it leads to lots of spending on things that are not good development priorities and not good for Britain's reputation. And some cabinet ministers that I've spoken to this week have said, in fact, that they don't expect the 0.7% target to last. Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, was asked about this. And he said, well, first of all, it's in law. Well, yes, we know it's in law and they can change the law. And the second thing he said is we're not going to prejudice the spending review that's coming later this year. So if you take those two things together, it does feel like you could get into a situation where the government changes the law and simply says that, you know, we've got more priorities at home, particularly due to coronavirus. And having a spending target doesn't always make for the best policy making. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of party management and politics, it's easy to see where this goes. There is a strong, as it were, autarkic strain in the Conservative Party that doesn't understand why we're throwing money abroad when we need it at home. It's also very easy if you start off with this predisposition to find ways in which money is wasted. Although, let's be fair, it's very easy to find ways in which money is wasted in every piece of government spending. If you want to look for it, you'll certainly find it. I also think as times get tough 
politically for Boris Johnson. This is one of those pieces of meat he can throw the backbenchers with almost no political consequences in terms of his popularity among the electorate. And then you add on the strategic thinking that maybe we need to get more bang for our buck in the way we spend our money. And it makes for a compelling case for a conservative government, particularly conservative government, facing financial difficulty. Many people, you know, will look at the DFID record and say, you know, something like 55 million children have been immunised since 2015 and extraordinary numbers and great deals of good that has done. And others will look at it and say, this is all fantastic, but we actually need to pursue our strategic goals and soft power is all very wonderful. But we need to be pushing in Britain's interests. Personally, I think there is a middle ground here, which is that actually one has to remember the soft power benefits that Britain gains from overseas aid and being good at it. One has to remember that there are other countries ready to jump in and secure the political influence that can come from being a donor country. But I think to go back to your fundamental point, it's very hard to see how this budget remains at the level it is. Bodman, do you think it would be a mistake to get rid of 0.7 and move away from that OECD definition? Because, of course, there's been concerns and scandals over many years about when you bring aid closer to diplomacy or closer to defence, that you end up in a situation where it's not as clearly monitored and it's maybe not used for aid purposes at all. If you take the 0.7% for itself, this really has to be a political decision about the role that Britain wants to have in the world. It was a statement to commit to the 0.7%. I think it's one that has done good things for Britain, saying that these are values and this is the kind of role that we want to have in the world. On the monitoring, I think that's sort of fuzzier ground. I mean, aid is hard to monitor. It's very hard to monitor what the impact is. There may well be other countries spending aid there, other organisations, and it's always hard to work out cause and effect. You put money in and is that responsible for the improvement in the area and those people's lives or not? And I think the monitoring of the aid budget has has got better over the years, and parliamentary committees are very good at this. But it, it's still a very very difficult territory, and there's always it's always going to be possible to say, look, this stuff was wasted. Look at look at what's been spent here, and there have been real horror stories over the years. Does it get more abused by being synchronised or appropriated by foreign policy aims? Well, it depends what those aims are. And I think not necessarily, but it does become more strategically deployed, if you like. And this is what people have been very wary of in the past. And that was the main argument for separating the two, saying Britain will turn on and off the aid tap, depending on whether it likes a government and is trying to put pressure on that government. And yet, you know, the purpose of our aid and development budget is to relieve poverty. It's his mission at the moment. And so maybe you're hurting poor people because they've got a bad leader or a government that we don't like. So there's no question that the purpose of it may change and the deployment and the choice of countries, but it doesn't necessarily get harder to monitor. Well, finally, Robert, I guess this feeds into the much wider question about what is Britain's foreign policy at the moment? That it's obviously ever since the Brexit vote in 2016, both the May and Johnson governments have talked about this concept of global Britain, which we've not quite put much flesh on the bones to that. But we've also got this integrated review going on, which is meant to be taking a holistic view across Whitehall, across all departments of our defence capabilities, our foreign policy capabilities, and basically how Britain projects itself on the world. Do you get any sense that there is some kind of coherent vision emerging from Downing Street about what global Britain is actually going to mean? Or is it something that's just going to develop naturally once, you know, the final Brexit fissure has happened, once we've had the US election and we know who's going to be in the White House? um, And once you know what kind of trade deals are going to be achievable? I think you put your finger on it in that question with the phrase coherent vision, because I think there's vision, 
but I'm not yet sure it's coherent. And I think as with a lot of areas with this government, you have a clear sense of what they think they're trying to achieve. You understand the very, very highest level of the strategy. But the moment you get into the implementation questions, it becomes much more difficult. Global Britain is a catchphrase. It doesn't really mean very much other than an attempt to show that leaving the European Union does not mean you're turning inward. That's the premise of Global Britain, that we're going to have fantastic ties with lots of countries all over the world, not be rooted merely within the European Union. It's very clear that there are certain countries and certain governments that the UK is much more comfortable with, Australia being an obvious one. And I think it would be a lot easier for this government if there was a president in the White House who did not repel significant chunk of the British electorate. Because if you're going to pursue essentially a pro-Western Atlanticist policy, which I think fundamentally still remains this government's position, it's a lot easier to pursue when you have a US president that you can sell to the country. So I think the simple answer to your question is it will become much clearer after the US election. But anyone seeking to glean a substantially different direction for British foreign policy, I think is going to be disappointed. I'd be very surprised if we are not still essentially an Atlanticist country, but one attempting to work out the nature of its relationship with the European Union. And finally, briefly, Bronwyn, what are your thoughts on what global Britain could or should be? It's very much in flux at the moment. I think I'm looking to the defence review, the strategic review that you talked about this autumn, though, again, very hard to nail that down before the American election. And we, we see the results of that. We'll be looking across the Atlantic a lot for our partnerships, particularly in that area. But we are going, as ever, maybe <laughs> be trying to do an awful lot with less money than um, we've put into some of these areas in the past. And it's going to take some years to reconcile, I think, ambitions and financial reality. Robert and Bonneman, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you enjoyed the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And for those who have become regular listeners of our interview specials, our next midweek episode is out on Wednesday the 9th. I'm speaking to Bridget Philipson, Labour's Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury, to discuss how the party can become fiscally credible again and rebuild itself in the north of England. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh Delamere. The sound engineer is Breen Turner and the editor, Liam Nolan. Until next time, thanks for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.